Chapter Two of K. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. K. By Mary Roberts Reinhardt. Chapter Two. Sidney could not remember when her Aunt Harriet had not sat at the table. It was one of her earliest disillusionments to learn that Aunt Harriet lived with them, not because she wished to, but because Sidney's father had borrowed her small patrimony, and she was boarding it out. Eighteen years she had boarded it out. Sidney had been born and grown into girlhood. The dreamer father had gone to his grave, with valuable patents lost for lack of money to renew them, gone with his faith in himself destroyed, but with his faith in the world undiminished, for he left his wife and daughter without a dollar of life insurance. Harriet Kennedy had voiced her own view of the matter, the after the funeral, to one of her neighbors. He left no insurance. Why should he bother? He left me. To the little widow, her sister, she had been no less bitter and more explicit. "'It looks to me, Anna,' she said, as if by borrowing everything I had, George had bought me, body and soul, for the rest of my natural life. I'll stay now until Sidney is not able to take hold. Then I'm going to live my own life. It will be a little late, but the Kennedys live a long time.' The day of Harriet's leaving had seemed far away to Anna Page. Sidney was still her baby, a pretty, rather leggy girl, in her first year at the high school, prone to saunter home with three or four knickerbockered boys in her train reading The Duchess, stealthily and begging for longer dresses. She had given up her dolls, but she still made clothes for them out of scraps from Harriet's sewing-room. In the parlance of the street, Harriet sewed and sewed well. She had taken Anna into business with her but the burden of the partnership had always been on Harriet. To give her credit, she had not complained. She was past forty by that time, and her youth had slipped by in that back room with its dingy wallpaper covered with paper patterns. On the day after the arrival of the rumor, Harriet Kennedy came down to breakfast a little late. Katie, the general workhouse girl, had tied a small white apron over her generous gingham one, and was serving breakfast. From the kitchen came the dump of an iron and a cheerful singing. Sidney was ironing napkins. Mrs. Page, who had taken advantage of Harriet's tardiness to read the obituary column in the morning paper, dropped it. But Harriet did not sit down. It was her custom to jerk her chair out and drop into it as if she grudged every hour spent on food. Sidney, not hearing the jerk, paused with her iron in air. Sidney! "'Yes, Aunt Harriet. Will you come in, please?' Katie took the iron from her. "'You go. She's all dressed up, and she doesn't want any coffee.' So Sidney went in. It was to her that Harriet made her speech. "'Sidney, when your father died, I promised to look after both you and your mother until you were able to take care of yourself. That was five years ago. Of course, even before that, I had helped to support you. If you would only have your coffee, Harriet.' Mrs. Page sat with her hand on the handle of the old silver-plated coffee-pot. Harriet ignored her. "'You are a young woman now. You have health and energy, and you have youth, which I haven't. I'm past forty. In the next twenty years at the outside I've got not only to support myself, 
but to save something to keep me after that. If I live, I'll probably live to be ninety. I don't want to live forever, but I've always played in hard luck. Sidney returned her gaze steadily. I see. Well, Aunt Harriet, you're quite right. You've been a saint to us, but if you want to go away— Harriet! wailed Mrs. Page. You're not thinking— Please, mother! Harriet's eyes softened as she looked at the girl. We can manage, said Sidney quietly. We'll miss you, but it's time we learned to depend on ourselves. After that, in a torrent, came Harriet's declaration of independence, and mixed in with its pathetic jumble of recriminations, hostility to her sister's dead husband, and resentment for her lost years, came poor Harriet's hopes and ambitions, the tragic plea of a woman who must substitute for the optimism and energy of youth the grim determination of middle age. "'I can do good work,' she finished. "'I'm full of ideas.' if i could get a chance to work them out but there's no chance here there isn't a woman on the street who knows real clothes when she sees them they don't even know how to wear their corsets they send me bundles of hideous stuff with needles and shields and imitation silk for lining and when i turn out something worth while out of the mess they think the dress is queer mrs page could not get back of harriet's revolt to its cause to her harriet was not an artistic pleading for her art she was a sister and a breadwinner deserting her trust i'm sure she said stiffly we paid you back every cent we borrowed if you stayed here after george died it was because you offered to her chin worked she fumbled for the handkerchief at her belt but sydney went around the table and flung a young arm over her aunt's shoulders why didn't you say all that a year ago We've been selfish, but we're not as bad as you think, and if anyone in this world is entitled to success, you are. Of course we'll manage. Harriet's iron repression almost gave way. She covered her emotion with details. Mrs. Lorenz is going to let me make Christine some things, and if they're all right I may make her a trousseau. Trousseau? For Christine? She's not engaged, but her mother says it's only a matter of short time. I'm going to take two rooms in the business part of town and put a couch in the back room to sleep on. Sidney's mind flew to Christine and her bright future, to which her so bought with the Lawrence money. To Christine settled down, a married woman with Palmer Howe. She came back with an effort. Harriet had two triangular red spots in her sallow cheeks. I can get a good few models. That's the only way to start, and if you care to do hard work for me, Anna, I'll send it to you and pay you the regular rates. There isn't the call for it there used to be, but just a touch gives dash. All of Mrs. Page's grievances had worked their way to the surface. Sidney and Harriet had made her world such as it was, and her world was in revolt. She flung out her hands. I suppose I must do something. With you leaving and Sidney renting her room and sleeping on a folding bed in the sewing room, everything seems upside down. I never thought I should live to see strange men running in and out of this house and carrying latch-keys. This in reference to Le Moyne, whose tall figure had made a hurried exit some time before. Nothing could have symbolized Harriet's revolt more thoroughly than her going upstairs after a hurried breakfast and putting on her hat and coat. She had heard of rooms, she said, and there was nothing urgent in the workroom. Her eyes were brighter already as she went out. 
Sidney, kissing her in the hall and wishing her luck, realized suddenly what a burden she and her mother must have been for the last few years. She threw her head up proudly. They would never be a burden again, never as long as she had strength and health. By evening Mrs. Page had worked herself into a state boarding on hysteria. Harriet was out most of the day. She came in at three o'clock, and Katie gave her a cup of tea. At the news of her sister's condition, she merely shrugged her shoulders. "'She'll not die, Katie,' she said calmly. "'But see that Miss Sidney eats something, and if she is worried, tell her I said to get Dr. Ed.' Very significant of Harriet's altered outlook was this casual summoning of the street's family doctor. She was already dealing in larger figures. A sort of recklessness had come over her since the morning. Already she was learning that peace of mind is essential to successful endeavor. Somewhere Harriet had read a quotation from a Persian poet. She could not remember it, but its sense had stayed with her. What, though we spill a few grains of corn or drops of oil from the cruise? These be the price of peace. So Harriet, having spilled oil from her cruise in the shape of Dr. Ed, departed blithely. The recklessness of pure adventure was in her blood. She had taken rooms at a rental that she determinedly put out of her mind, and she was on her way to buy furniture. No pirate fitting out a ship for the highways of the sea ever experienced more guilty and delightful excitement. The afternoon dragged away. Dr. Ed was out, on a case, and might not be in until evening. Sidney sat in the darkened room and waved a fan over her mother's rigid form. At half after five, Johnny Rosenfield from the alley, who worked for a florist after school, brought a box of roses to Sidney and departed, grinning impishly. He knew Joe had seen him in the store. Soon the alley knew that Sidney had received a dozen Killerney roses at three dollars and a half and was probably engaged to Joe Drummond. Dr. Ed, said Sidney, as he followed her down the stairs, can you spare the time to talk to me a little while? Perhaps the elder Wilson had a quick vision of the crowded office waiting across the street, but his reply was prompt. Any amount of time. Sidney led the way into the small parlor where Joe's roses, refused by the petulant invalid upstairs, bloomed alone. First of all, said Sidney, did you mean what you said upstairs? Dr. Ed thought quickly. Of course, but what? You said I was a born nurse. The street was very fond of Dr. Ed. It did not always approve of him. It said, which was perfectly true, that he had sacrificed himself to his brother's career, that, for the sake of that brilliant young surgeon, Dr. Ed had done without wife and children, that to send him abroad he had saved and skimped, that he still went shabby and drove the old buggy while Max drove about in an automobile coupé. Sidney, not at all of the stuff martyrs are made of, sat in the parlor, and, remembering all this, was ashamed of her rebellion. "'I'm going into a hospital,' said Sidney. Dr. Ed waited. He liked to have all the symptoms before he made a diagnosis or ventured an opinion. So Sidney, trying to be cheerful, and quite unconscious of the anxiety in her voice, told her story. "'It's fearfully hard work, of course,' he commented, when she had finished. "'So is anything worth while. Look at the way you work.' Dr. Ed rose and wandered around the room. "'You're too young. I'll get older.' "'I don't think I like the idea,' he said at last. "'It's splendid work for an older woman. But it's life, child, life in the raw, 
as we get along in years we lose our illusions some of them not all thank god but for you at your age to be brought face to face with things as they are and not as we want them to be it seems such an unnecessary sacrifice don't you think said sydney bravely that you are a poor person to talk of sacrifice haven't you always all your life dr ed colored at the roots of his straw-colored hair certainly not he said almost irritably max had genius i had ability that's different one real success is better than two halves not he smiled down at her not that i minimize my usefulness somebody has to do the hack work and if i do say it myself i'm a pretty good hack very well said sydney then i shall be a hack too of course i had thought of other things my father wanted me to go to college but i'm strong and willing and one thing i must make up my mind to do dr ed i shall have to support my mother harriet passed the door on her way in to a belated supper the man in the parlor had a momentary glimpse of her slender sagging shoulders her thin face her undisguised middle age yes he said when she was out of hearing it's hard but i dare say it's right enough too your aunt ought to have her chance only i wish it didn't have to be sydney left alone stood in the little parlor beside the roses she touched them tenderly absently life which the day before had called her with the beckoning finger of dreams now reached out grim insistent hands life in the raw End of chapter 2